Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. This is the First Take Podcast, First Word Farmers' weekly review of uh, the key industry news stories. My name is Simon King. I'm an executive editor at First Word Farmer Plus. I have with me uh, my colleague, Michael Flanagan, also um, executive editor. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? Not bad, Simon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. Let's let's crack on. Um, last in last weekend, in last week's podcast, we um, we briefly previewed uh, the ASCO GU conference, which actually happened um, over over last weekend. Um, one of the big um, kind of important data sets that people were looking out for uh, were results from the Phase Three Clear study, which um, is evaluating uh, the combination of Merck and Co's peak. PD1 inhibitor Keytruda and uh, Lenvima, which is a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is um, it's actually being co-developed by um, Eyesight and Merck and Co. Um, the data kind of didn't disappoint. It was pretty impressive. Um, in a nutshell, though, this is a market which has become um, kind of increasingly crowded. There's um, there's there's quite a few PD1 or PDL1 TKI combinations that have now been approved for first line renal cell carcinoma. Um, Michael, I know you spoke to a, a KOL on the back of the data. I mean, it looks like Keytruda Lenvima as a combination is likely to be approved. I guess the question is um, is, is whether it's going to be uh, you know or to what extent it's going to be used by oncologists. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I think. Um... The, the guy or the, the oncologist I spoke with from Georgetown, he's a big fan in this setting of using the IOIO combination of Yervoy and Optivo. Uh, he thinks that that offers the best chance for sort of a curative type, um, you know, uh, result based on the long-term, you know, four-year uh, safe or survival data, but you know he he when when looking at this clear data, he basically said that it looks like Lenvima and Keytruda is the most effective of the now three well soon to be three IO uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor combinations available. The other two being Cabomedics and Opdivo, uh, and then another one with Keytruda and Inlita from Pfizer. So he he suggested that. Essentially, based on Lenvima, this is the most effective of the three um, IOTKI combinations. But he warned that you know the Lenvima is more problematic uh, from a tolerability perspective. So you know that's what it's going to come down to for for physicians and, and uh, patients. It's whether you know if they want to get really aggressive with the therapy or whether they're going to look for something that's a little bit more uh, tolerable. Um, when it comes down to it. So that'll, that'll be the big question. Yeah. Just to note, I think there is, there's a, there's actually another combination which is approved. I think the Merck KGAA um, and Pfizer PDL1 inhibitor Preventio is also um, approved um, in combination within lighter. But I think, yeah, to, to go to your, to your main point, I think, you know, there's now a kind of a, there's another option for oncologists to use if they go for the the IO TKI approach. As you said, the other option is to go for the kind of the dual IO IO 
in, uh, which is specifically using Bristol Myers Squibs of Devo with Yearboy, which has got that kind of pretty impressive um, durability in terms of the, the survival curve. I mean, just to delve into the data from the clear study um, a little bit, uh, it was the, it was the, the, the PFS, um, the progression-free survival data, which kind of really jumped out. Um, uh, the, the combination was shown to reduce the risk of disease progression or death by 61%. And uh, another thing that was, I, I listened to the presentation at ASCO GU, and one of the things that a couple of discussants pointed out was the complete response rate with this combination is about 16%, which is is double the closest competitor. Um, obviously, cross-study comparisons are always, you know, need to be caveated. But I think the combination of Abdivo and Cabometics, I think it's got like an 8% complete response rate. So there's definitely something about the efficacy of this combination that is pretty impressive. But uh, as you alluded to, Michael, I think toxicity is going to be an issue. Um, Robert um, Motzer, who is the he was the lead investigator of this study, he did make an important point, which was um, he felt that some of the toxicity issues occurred um, due to a longer duration of treatment. But I guess that's something that might be borne out in, in kind of real-world usage. He did also note that um, he felt in terms of the IO-TKI combinations, um, it was the pairings of Keytruda and Enlita, Keytruda and Lenvima, as, as per this study, and Obdivo Cabometics were the three that he he felt you know oncologists would be uh you know would be recommended to choose from if they were going for that kind of combination and uh, kind of inferred there was little kind of little to uh to kind of um separate those i guess in terms of overall data sets um exactly yeah. one more thing to add on that so while the the pfs and response rate really did stand out for keytruda and lenvima the overall survival data on the other hand was according to the KOL I spoke with rather disappointing. Um, so that's where you know it just raises another question about the uh, the overall benefit of that combination. But you know it's just going to take more data and perhaps even real world use for for people to really tease that those differences out. Yeah. On that note, I think what we're going to try and do is um, I'd I'd like to try and get one of our first impact studies. Um, into field actually to look at this to as you've sort of literally just said to try and tease out maybe some of the factors that are going to be more prominent in, in prompting oncologists to choose one regimen over the other so um if that you know if renal cell carcinoma is an area that, that anyone's interested in keep an eye out for that i think that's something we're going to try and get into field in the next couple of weeks and and we'll probably um pr uh, present those data in, in some sort of live event um Let's move on. Um, in, the, in the last couple of days, um, uh, Eli Lilly has, has, has announced some more data for its um, its experimental diabetes drug, tazepatide, um, which is uh, a, a potential first-in-class GIP, GLP-1 agonist. Um, it, it, I, I guess you'd, you'd kind of categorize it as one of the potential big... Um, I guess not launches. It's going to. I guess it's going to be submitted to regulators this year, assuming that there's no major red flags with the data. It's one of the the big um, key, you know, phase three drugs that that, that people have got their eyes on. Um, we had a bit of data that came out, um, and I should say that the the the, the excitement around this product is, is largely based on, on on earlier phase two data. 
Um, we had the first phase three data that came out just, uh, I think it was late December time, mid-December, um, which kind of confirmed that, you know, in terms of efficacy for diabetes treatment treatments, you know, tazepatide looks like it might be the best thing that's that's ever been available on the market for type 2 diabetes. And we had some more data this week from two phase three studies that have kind of confirmed that, you know, in terms of blood glucose lowering and weight loss, this drug appears to be, you know, on the face of it, marginally better than the, than the GL, GLP-1 agonists, which which are kind of, you know, uh, categorized as, as, as the high benchmark for, for, for efficacious diabetes drugs. Yeah, uh, that was always going to be the question. You know, it, it sounds like it with the combination of GIP and GLP-1, you know, they, they thought it was going to be more effective, and it seems like it, it is going to be a little bit more effective than uh, the, the GLP-1 agonist that it's going to compete with. The big question was whether it's going to be tolerable enough. And so far, anyway, it seems like uh, it might be passing that test. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's definitely a few issues. There's a few issues in terms of, in terms of sort of gastrointestinal um, tolerability. I mean, worth noting, nothing, nothing, no red flags in terms of in terms of serious side effects. Um, more a case of, of of how you're going to um, you're going to manage these GI issues. I think. Um, I think it, it's interesting. I think what what you're saying is true. I think at one point, lots of people got very excited about this potential new class and thought this is this is going to absolutely blow everything else out of the water and I, and I think it's from the efficacy standpoint it's definitely setting a new bar but I think um, I think maybe the gap is not quite as large as some commentators were expecting I guess in terms of what we've got to look out for we'll have some head-to-head -head data against Novo Nordisk's uh, GLP-1 agonist Ozempic uh, there's a head-to-head -head phase three study which is due to read out before mid mid-year that's going to be quite important because we're going to get a kind of a bit more of a sense of how the efficacy and the the the, the, the tolerability issues stack up in a in a single study against the glp1 but i think what's also going to be quite interesting i can i can foresee this being a, a potential launch where um uh tazepatide is maybe approved and is launched and gets a certain amount of uptake but I think there might still be some doubt. You know, the GLP-1s have done such a good job at demonstrating a cardioprotective effect. And um, because this is a brand new mechanism and it's this kind of dual mechanism that targets GIP and GLP-1, there's still some debate as to what kind of CV profile these um, drugs are going to have. And um, I don't think the study, the study that Eli Lilly are running, the big um, cardiovascular outcome study against their own GLP-1 agonist, Trulicity, I think it reads out in 2024. Obviously, if those data are, are super positive, then I think we may see a scenario where tazepatide is launched and then gets a kind of a second wind of acceleration if, if that subsequent data really shows that that these are cardioprotective um, like the GLP-1s are as well. So definitely one to keep an eye out and out an eye out for um michael i wanted to turn our attentions to a, um a, an approval this week um yeah this is novartis's heart failure drug entresto um it's a drug that's been on the market for quite a few years now it's been approved for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction 
Um, it actually got approved this week. Um, it had its label expanded to include preserved ejection fraction, so broadening the number of heart failure patients who are eligible to be treated with it. Um, the really interesting thing is that it, the label is kind of very open to interpretation by cardiologists. There's, um, you know, the main thing being that there's kind of, there's no upper recommended cutoff in ejection fraction level, if that's the best way to describe it. So, you know, the FDA has kind of gone as far to say, uh, you know, this is really down to a number of factors that you're going to consider whether you're going to use this, this product or not. And it seems to be that, you know, I've read a few analyst notes today, they seem to think that that's a kind of a, a best case scenario for Novartis now. Yeah, this is an interesting situation because when the um, when the data first came out from the Paragon study back in I think 2019 it was, it missed the primary endpoint in the HEFPEF as they call it, uh, the HEFPEF uh, indication. So the KOL, I remember speaking to KOLs back then, and they were a little dubious about whether this was you know going to get across the line in this preserved ejection fraction population. Um, but, you know, it did, not only did it get across the line, it seems like a, a real sort of almost best case scenario that FDA is sort of giving physicians the green light to use it um, however they see fit. So, yeah, it's, it's, this is going to be probably a really big drug. Um, I mean, it already is, but now this is going to add, you know, several billion perhaps to to its peak sales, which is, that's uh, pretty big. So interesting, interesting news, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Novartis have said this week. Um, I, I think, and I think this figure's been in been in the, the sort of public domain for a little while. But they kind of feel that peak sales will be about five billion dollars on a global basis. I think Entresto generated about two and a half billion dollars last year. Um, I mean, they've tried to they've tried to take a kind of a cautious stance this week. Um, they've said the uptake in the new indication will be slow. Um, they feel that. Um, Updates to guidelines, clinical diet guidelines, will be critical to shaping how it's used. Um, I mean, cardiologists are kind of have a you know they have a reputation for being quite conservative. I would say. I mean, we know this in a way, partly because the the other interesting thing about Entresto from a kind of a commercial story is that it, it was launched with a lot of fanfare by Novartis and by analysts and investors, you know, were, were very excited. And it actually, this drug took a, took quite a few years to actually kind of generate anywhere near the sales that people were, were, were expecting. Um, I mean, I remember covering Novartis quarterly earnings, um, you know, going back three, four years ago. And, and, and it was one of the things that was always sort of scrutinized is, you know, are Entresto sales going up? And you know, to their credit, they 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 were always said they were committed to the product. They 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 said they understood the dynamics of of, of why cardiologists were were being slow to prescribe it, um, and it, it's kind of got there in the end. Um, there's another study being run for um, uh, myocardial infarction, I believe. So there could be you know potentially even. Um, you know, further expansion of sales. And I think the one thing I would say, um, I think it's it's probably a, a wise move by Novartis to be cautious, but we actually ran a short survey to cardiologists um, a couple of months ago. And I 
the 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 responses we got suggested to me that that this might be used in this broader population a, a bit faster than maybe people are expecting. I think now that cardiologists are used to Entresto, um, I, I, I think maybe uh, they'll be less cautious. We've actually got another another survey in the field at the moment. We'll be um, presenting those results next week, publishing them in an article. So keep an eye out for that. Um, it, uh, like you said, it, it's going to be really interesting. We're, we're hoping to get a bit of perspective from cardiologists about... Um, how they view that label and how that may influence their prescribing in terms of you know what types of patients they're gonna they're gonna use Entresto with. So I think that could be be super interesting. Um, yeah, and part of, part of that, by the way, is the fact that there's just nothing else out there for FPEF. So like you know, sure. doctors probably are, are chomping at the bit to to just be able to give their patients something. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point actually. Um, on a slightly um, a slightly less positive note um we had news this week michael about bluebird bio um, um essentially halting a couple of studies um, of one of their gene therapies um and i i th this kind of comes at a time when gene therapies across the board seem to be attracting um you know seems to be a seems to have been a bit of accumulation of, of kind of bad news yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a new uh, therapeutic modality, at least in terms of the um, where it is in the um, evolution. You know, I mean, like we actually have some gene therapies out on the market, uh, which means obviously there's been some breakthroughs, but it's still early in terms of, you know, how these are being used. Um, and, and more and more companies and, and groups are bringing gene therapies to the table. So you got to sort of expect that with this, you know, a new modality, there's going to be some growing pains, yeah. which feels like what's what's going on here. Um, I mean, and, I, suppose, you know, I suppose the one thing yeah. to point out, sorry, to, the one thing to point out is obviously there's a huge amount of kind of investor excitement around this approach, isn't there? I mean, it, this is... If you're talking about those kind of those big ticket biotech investor items at the moment, I think you'd probably put gene therapy, you know, near the top, if not right at the top, wouldn't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's got that sort of elegance of a one-time cure, which is like that's the the potential anyway for it. It seems like some of these therapies may not end up being quite that durable. But yeah, that's that's sort of the the excitement about gene therapy. You give it once, and you know it changes something within somebody's body, and it and it cures them of this uh, of whatever disease it is. So yeah, there's a lot of excitement. Um, there's now products on the market to sort of validate the approach. Um, so yeah, the, the, there's going to be more excitement. There's going to be more money. There's going to be more groups coming to the table with with new gene therapies. Um, so but this one specifically. The, the sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia um, gene therapy from Bluebird has been, you know, it's been one of the ones that has been on people's uh, radar for a long time now. Bluebird has sort of been one of those companies at the forefront of gene therapy for quite a quite a while now. Um, so this, you know, this will definitely <laughs> probably sort of shake people's um, uh, I don't know if, if excitement is really the, the way to go, but just, you know, it, this isn't a, a big, this could be a big deal. So mm -hmm. they, they had two cases of malignancies that came up in the last however many weeks. Uh, one was AML, one was MDS. And, you know, two patients 
coming down with um, malignancies out of, say, 100. And then you add in a couple years ago, they had um, a case of MDS show up as well for this gene therapy. So, you know, it, you don't know. It's basically a big question mark. Were these cancers um, or malignancies driven by or even related to the gene therapy? They just don't know at this point. Um, you know, because these are uh, conditions where um, these sorts of cancers are not unheard of. You know, there's sort of a background rate that this would even fall within that rate, really. If you say that it's been given to about 100 patients and there's been three cases of malignancy, um, apparently that, that would sort of fall within the expected rate of the background malignancies. But at the same time, there's, you know, there's some question marks because I think the, the CEO, Nick Leshley of, of Bluebird, he mentioned on the, on the call to, to discuss the, the results or to discuss the news that uh, one of the patients, the patient with AML, um, who received the, the Bluebird gene therapy about five years ago, right. the vector was actually found in the, you know, the DNA of the, the tumor cell. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, that's clearly cause for concern. I talked to a KOL and he said, we just don't know at this point, you know, it's just sort of like, he didn't want to call it a coin flip, but it's just like, we, we just need more information to know what's going on here. But, you know, it's clearly cause for concern and that's why they're, they're halting two studies and they're actually going to stop sales of the, the drug in Europe where it's market marketed for beta thalassemia. Um, till we know what's going on. I mean, Leslie suggested that he he thinks it'll be a a, a matter of weeks um, before they figure it out, which seems aggressive. But um, you know, obviously, would would be great to to know, and, and the sooner they know, the, the better. Sure. So obviously, this is sort of not great timing for Bluebird. You know, they're now running this investigation to to, to figure out what's going on, whether these are, are associated. But it was only. I mean, what are we talking? We're probably talking about four or five weeks ago that the CEO had announced, uh, I think it was at JP Morgan or maybe just before, um, that Bluebird is planning on splitting into two separate companies in the not too distant future, one which will be focused on um, its oncology products and one which will be focused on rare disease um, gene therapies. And it you know, there's there's been a kind of a suggestion now, well, if this product is found to be associated and sort of falls by the wayside, is that still viable, given that the, 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 the gene therapy, uh, you know, the rare disease gene therapy component of those two business units might not actually kind of uh, yeah. have that kind of critical <laughs> mass in terms of a product? Yeah, I mean, the, the oncology unit seems like it would still have plenty of, you know, interest and everything. But if you take lentiglobin, which is what they call it here in the U.S., the sickle cell gene therapy, if you take that out of the equation, I think there's serious questions about whether this, um, what do they call it? They call it the severe genetic disease unit, whether it, it's a viable standalone business. Because they basically have one, uh, another ex vivo gene therapy called Lenta-D that is on sort of the verge of a BLA submission, but it's for a very rare genetic condition. You know, the, the commercial opportunities there are going to be pretty modest. Um, and then they have a second generation lentiviral gene therapy for sickle cell disease that's much earlier in development. But besides that, there's not a lot to draw 
investor interest, which would be necessary if it's going to be a sort of a standalone unit. So uh, Leslie on the call suggested, um, you know, they're still all systems go, and they're, you know, gung ho about splitting the company. But obviously, um, this raises some big question marks. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is definitely one to watch. Um, implications for Bluebirds. I mean, I, I'm guessing implications for uh, the whole gene therapy field and lots of other companies. Lentiviral, yeah. Specifically for lentiviral, I would say. But yeah, for lentiviral companies that are developing gene therapies based on lentiviral uh, vectors. Yeah, you know, they, they're definitely going <laughs> to, something that they're going to keep an eye on. Okay. Um. I just wanted before we wrap up. I just wanted to talk about the deal that um, Nectar Therapeutics uh, announced this week with Merck and Co. Um, it's for a drug which targets the IL two pathway that I'm not even going to attempt to. Um, <laughs> I'm going to attempt to to to, to use its name. Um, I'll leave that to you, Michael. Um, Give us a quick overview of this deal because I know I know you wrote about it and I know the drug in question and Nectar have kind of they've had a bit of a checkered past with this product, haven't they? And it, and it, and it's it, this feels like a, a little bit of a, a second chance, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. Um, so the product, I'll give it a shot. Uh, Bempagaldescalucan, something like that. I'm just going to call it Bempeg because that's a lot easier. Um, so Bempeg is, uh, and Nectar is very careful about how they describe the product. So they, they describe it as a CD122 preferential IL-2 pathway agonist. They're very careful not to call it an IL-2 agonist because IL-2 agonist comes with a lot of baggage in terms of the safety profile of, of some earlier drugs. Um, so this uh, CD122 preferential IL-2 pathway agonist was one of the you know real early um, big stars uh, when it comes to combinations with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. So there was the IDO from Insight that was you know on everybody's radar and everybody was excited about, uh, and that was in phase three testing uh, in 2018, right when uh, right when Nectar announced a deal with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. So Bristol Myers Squibb through almost $2 billion at Nectar back in 2018 uh, to partner up and combine this Bempeg with Optivo in, you know, certain indications. Uh, that was just uh, basically two or three months before the IDO program from Insight essentially, you know, uh, crashed and burned. So the, the excitement about the, the, the combinations of uh, anti-PD-1 and other IOs from there has tailed off a little bit. Uh, as has the excitement in Bempeg, because you know the data haven't been nearly as you know positive as was hoped going in. Um, some of the early you know strong responses proved not to be quite as durable. Uh, Nectar has had various arguments for why that is. One of them being they they perhaps had a manufacturing issue that may have um, hindered their their success. But yeah, you're right. This seems like it's sort of a, a second win, perhaps. Uh, and at least shows that there's other people who are still ex, uh, excited about the, the, the possibilities of BEMPEG because the two deals this, this week, there was um, first with, with Merck, they announced that, you know, essentially Merck's going to provide uh, Keytruda uh, under a clinical supply agreement, and they're going to do that for a phase two three trial of Bempeg, which will be combined with Keytruda for head and neck cancer. 
And then a second deal that Nectar announced with a company, SFJ Pharmaceuticals, which is you know a private equity-backed company. This FFJ, SFJ is essentially going to fund the phase two, three trial uh, with Bempeg and Keytruda up to at least $150, $150 million, I should say. Um, so it's essentially, it's an interesting uh, move and it, it seems like it's sort of a, a low risk win for Nectar in the sense that they now have a free call option on Bempeg's success in head and neck cancer. Um, I think F- SFJ would be eligible for milestones on certain approvals. Um, and, but it also, it, you know, it's it's just a, it, one of the interesting aspects about that earlier deal with, with BMS when they threw almost $2 billion at Nectar is that they allowed Nectar the freedom to develop Bempeg on its own in certain indications. So, you know, Nectar is uh, doing what they what they should do and uh, taking <laughs> taking advantage of that. And, yeah. you know. So it will certainly be a, an element of irony if uh, if the you know which is obviously you know Katrina and Obdivo obviously um, you know very uh, competitive competitor products I guess you describe them as in in in, in the PD one inhibitor market. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's obviously interesting to think back to when that deal between BMS and Nectar was signed as well. I mean. You raise a really, you know, fascinating point that it's not that long ago when hopes were so high that, you know, we'd got the, the PD-1s, the PDL-1s, and we were going to have this kind of, you know, almost conveyor belt of other checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and obviously that hasn't materialized, but also interesting to think of it as, um, you know, BMS were really, I, I guess at that point, they were under... Um, you know, maybe under a bit more pressure at the time to kind of uh, try and get Obdivo back on that that path because Keytruda had obviously, um, you know, uh, been successful in the lung cancer space and Obdivo hadn't been. So, I mean, it's all part of that, what, what I personally think is a kind of a fascinating, you know, history um, with the development of these agents. You know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great story to kind of tell. Anyway, um, we could speak about um, cancer uh, immunotherapies all night. I'm sure there's just so much going on in that 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 part of the uh, market. But um, Michael, I will let you go. Um, thanks for chatting, and um, thanks everyone for listening. Cheers. Cheers.